as a strategy to be able to share with your partner, I have got this sexual fantasy, or maybe this is something that I'd like to incorporate into our sex life. It's really important to understand what is and how is it going to enrich that sexual connection. I'm Greg Runny. And I'm Rob Reeford. And this is Mind Body Matters. Welcome to our show where we talk about issues of the mind and body and how they impact each other. Thanks for tuning in. Unfortunately, Rob is away this week, so I'm flying solo on this episode and producing it, so I'm not quite sure how it's going to sound. But anyway, today we're talking about sex. Yes, S-E-X. I think this one will be fascinating and informative, but for some it might be a little uncomfortable, like me. And for some, triggering. This episode may contain discussion that some listeners may find disturbing, like sexual abuse, sex addiction, pornography, and trauma. So, listener discretion is advised. This interview reminds me of um, Dr. Ruth Westheimer. And for those who may not know, she was a sex therapist who, in the 80s, was kind of like a, a pop culture celebrity. Like, she was on all the talk shows, and she was on Johnny Carson, and I remember him being very embarrassed when uh, Dr. Westheimer would talk about sex. Today, we're going to interview two therapists who specialize in couples therapy. So they focus on intimacy and trust in a relationship. Some of their clients struggle with sex addiction and the impact of sexual abuse and trauma from the past that influences their sex life with their partner today. If you're struggling with your relationship in the bedroom, this episode will provide you some insight, and we hope provides a, an open discussion with your partner. In the studio today, we have Alex St. John and Natalie Cornelia. Alex has a master's in counseling psychology. He is a registered psychotherapist and a certified sexual addiction therapist and supervisor. He was trained in the Gottman method. Natalie is an Adlerian psychotherapist. Uh, Adler is, is the guy that uh, introduced that to the world of psychotherapy. She has a master's degree in counseling psychology and also is uh, a certified sexual addiction therapist. Let's bring them in. Alex St. John and Natalie Cornelia. I hope you find the interview helpful. Well, thank you so much for setting aside the time and your busy schedules to to come on the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having us, Greg. The focus of the podcast is uh, the relationship between the mind and body. So I I like to hear your view about the mind-body connection with the work that you guys do. What does it personally mean to you? I mean, I'm happy to to go first on this one. So, I, you know, when you ask that question, the first thing that comes to my mind is like one of my favorite trauma books, The Body Keeps the Score. Uh, by Bessel van der Kolk, and it's one of those books that I give to clients at the beginning of any work with me. Uh, and, and I think it speaks to how our bodies hold on to trauma, and it pops up in lots and lots of different ways that are oftentimes really unexpected. So when you ask the question of, like, what does the mind-body connection mean to me, mean to me it's very much... We have all of these things that are going on in our minds at all times, and it is so directly correlated to what's happening in our body. So that connection is one of the most important things that we need to pay attention to 
for our overall health, well-being, being centered, being grounded, being sexually healthy, being emotionally healthy. Uh, it's all interconnected. Absolutely. How about for you, Natalie? Um, very similar in a lot of ways. And I, I find that um, when somebody comes into my office in trauma, um, in any kind of you know crisis, a lot of times they they just need to tell their story. And so much of what's connected to their mind and their body is is that identical trauma. I, you know, working with partners um, that have had betrayal trauma, there's so much you know PTSD that's happening. So so much of my early work with them is really trying to connect their thoughts and their bodies so that they can be aligned. Um, on the other hand, sometimes, you know, it's really hard to work with some people that maybe don't have the same feeling around mind-body connection. Um, they may be very, in, you know, cerebral in their thinking, don't connect with their emotion, um, and those are the challenging uh, people to work with. But for me, all, you know, obviously working as a professional in this field, it has to be something that I'm able to actually do myself and really be able to, okay, what's really going on? What parts are coming up for me? Usually tell, you know, I get a little bit flushed or I, my heart rates races. I can see that my body is connecting with my mind and whatever's happening. So, so it, it's a real personal, um, a personal thing for me as well. Yeah. The more I do this, the more interviews uh, and the more I think about it, there, it's kind of odd that it's separated really, you know, our emotional health and physical health. It, it kind of makes sense, at least for us as therapists. But I think for most people that we talk about the connection, but of course there's a connection. It can't be separate, but we do kind of maybe physically, you know, it's like the, the mind is here in the brain and then you have the body and then the body is doing its thing. And we always think, oh, the, you know, we're thinking differently or feeling differently. It's very odd that we see it separately, eh? Mm-hmm. Well, polyvagal theory really looks at um, how the mind, how the mind and the body connect, right? And in you know, you think about the vagus nerve and all of the twists and turns that it takes, and it's so much a part of what a mind-body connection is. Alex, you want to speak more about that? Totally, <laughs> right out of my mouth as usual. I think that. Um, we're really beginning to learn to bridge that gap uh, in neuroscience right now in neuropsychology of the mind and body. And, you know, it, it is a relatively new way to look at psychotherapy interventions. But for all the new trainings that I do, and every time I go to a conference, they do begin with this notion of how we regulate our bodies through things that we can do with our minds and vice versa. And that that sort of coexistence of our mind and body is starting to be seen as a more holistic existence and not as separated as maybe it historically was. So when I was preparing for this, I realized that I had some reluctance to ask some questions myself because the kind of list of questions I think, yeah, you know, clients will probably ask that and I'd like to know the response to that. And then I realized... Oh, uh, that's kind of interesting. I wonder if Natalie and Alex would kind of interpret it that I'm asking about it because it's my sex life. <laughs> you know, the whole thing of, oh, uh, you know, I'm asking for a friend, you know, air quotes. Uh, yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> so it's, okay. it's, uh, it's interesting that, you know, I thought uh, I would be fully comfortable with it. And I am to a certain extent. I think if I had my therapist hat on, I certainly do. There's a lot of people 
uh, that still feel very uncomfortable mm-hmm. about asking these questions. So if a client's in front of you and uh, he or she says, are my sexual fantasies and preferences normal? How do you respond to that? Tell me about them. <laughs> Can we get some more information about what you're thinking mm-hmm. about? You know, I, and I think that is probably a question that we get relatively often. I bet. And uh, I, you know, I don't think that, and, and Natalie jump in here, but I don't mm-hmm. necessarily think that it's our job to define what's normal or not normal for anyone. Uh, it is more of a collaborative process to better understand how people's sexual identities and sexual sort of brain mapping happens and mm-hmm. get a sense of what's okay for them versus what's not okay for them. And, you know, I think that's the part where it gets complicated uh, because there's so many layers to this notion of what's actually okay. Like, you know, for example, someone may come into to my office and, and say, I'm doing this thing and this is a really big deal for me and I don't like it. And we'll have some sessions and we'll understand that this notion of shame that's coming up for them, because that's typically what we're talking about is shame, is shame that's left over from a childhood trauma and it isn't necessarily their shame. So I think that's where the, the layers of understanding what is healthy for someone versus what isn't come from is we understand, we try to understand together why is why is there shame here? Is this your shame because this goes against your value system? This isn't something that sits well in your body? Or is this shame here because, you know, in your family system growing up, they said that this was wrong and that has been internalized and is now showing up in your body? Mm-hmm. And for you, Natalie? I, I think when, when, when I think about it, you know, similarly, I will never judge. Like if somebody, I mean, somebody comes in and they start to talk about things, they're, they're coming for help. So I will just normalize as much as I can. I think primarily if, if they come in and they say they have sexual fantasies, there are certain things that are reportable. So as long as there isn't what the would action. Be reportable? Like what would be something that well, if they well, disclose? Something, something that they actually acted out with if it if there was actually an acting out with child pornography. Right. An acting out with, um, but a child. But, you know, I think that even if it if it's a sexual fantasy about domination and submission, if it's a sexual fantasy about, you know, anything that, you know, people that are outside of our field would say, oh, my God, how could you listen to that? I'm sure but you guys are, just, are never shocked. Yeah. You've probably heard everything no. by now, eh? No, very much so. I mean, I think for fantasy, sexual fantasy is normal. That's we're human beings and we 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 have fantasy and we have thoughts and we have templates, you know, we have things that we grew up with that stick with us, um, some healthy, some not so healthy. So as a matter of just listening them to them talk about their fantasies, it's it's all about normalizing and helping them through it if, if it's if it is shame based or if it's something that they really want to stop. You can't really stop your thoughts. And so your job really is to to normalize it and to see from their standpoint how how, yeah. how it fits in with them. And listen more about it. Listen to them. And acknowledge that as a society, we are uncomfortable to talk about sex. So 
moving into a space where we're getting deep and unpacking the layers of, of our thoughts and feelings around it, there's going to be some natural distress that comes with that. So being able to hold the space with the folks that we're supporting is so important and, and really sit in that place of curiosity and not judgment. Mm-hmm. Other questions, how can I communicate my sexual needs to my partner? How do you, how do you guys respond to that? Oh, I'll, I'll take this one. <laughs> um, so, so nobody would come in here and say that. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. <laughs> um, they probably aren't there yet, right? Is that, they is that probably, right? Yeah, they might not be there yet. Um, you know, I'm just, I'm just trying to get my head around that one. So I, I think in communicating what my sexual needs are to my partner. Well, let's say fantasies. We, we, we were talking about fantasies. So how, how yeah. do I communicate that I've got this fantasy, never shared it with my partner, but like, how do I communicate that? How do I discuss that with my partner? It's really, it, it's a matter of where they are. I mean, I'm thinking if it's a couple relationship, I would, I would very tread very slowly. If it's something that has had betrayal and the partner is aware of it or not aware of it or really worried about it, um, I would really tread slowly, but if they've been with me a long time and they've gone through the, all of the process around disclosure and, you know, they're, they're re-engaging sexually, of course, you know, it, it's part of real life. So, you know, how do I express my sexual needs to my partner just as honestly as possible? Mm-hmm. And, you know, what, and especially when there's been betrayal, there may, there may be things off the table, you know, if, if the, if the person's an addict and they've gone out there and they've done certain acts with another person, the partner might not be open to that. But as far as the actual fantasies are concerned, sharing what they are, trying to normalize and try to, to make as healthy as possible their connection, that's kind of where I would go with that. Yeah. And, and I, I might just add, because I, I really agree with that framework that Natalie's put forward, uh, that there's some preparedness in having this discussion with your partner because it's very natural for your partner to ask why and where is this coming from and as a strategy to be able to share with your partner i have got this sexual fantasy or maybe this is something that i'd like to incorporate into our sex life it's really important to understand where it's coming from and what it means and what is and how is it going to enrich that sexual connection? Because to just sit someone down and be like, you know, I really want to try this BDSM thing. You know, they're, they're rightfully going to have some questions and perhaps want to understand where this is coming from. And, and as Natalie said, a lot of the folks that we support have experienced betrayal trauma in their relationships. So there's a heightened sense of, anxiety or or trauma or, you know, biological responses to anything new sexual, because historically that's come with the sense of betrayal. So, you know, for for the person who is perhaps, you know, sexually addicted, they really want to be able to understand any new elements of their personal sexuality that they want to bring into that healthy sex life with their partner. So for those that don't know, can you explain what BDSM is? I'm not even quite sure. I'm, I'm guessing, but go ahead. <laughs> so BDSM is, uh, is, a, is a form of sexual expression that a lot of mm-hmm. folks find to be fulfilling and healthy. And it is where 
people are engaging in carefully crafted roles that allow them to exchange power in a sexual, uh, there is a sexual element to it yeah. usually, way. Uh, and and you know, safe. And a and safe, safe way. And safe, yes. Mm-hmm. So, so it is about embodying different roles sexually that, that maybe, you know, they don't have the opportunity to embody in life or or in other aspects of their personal sexuality and, you know, done, done openly and honestly and with great communication, it can be a really enhancing experience. Mm -hmm. Is it about control? Is it that um, some people, they want uh, someone to be a dominatrix or someone to be domineering because they, they want that person to have control and that they don't like, how, how does that work? Yeah, I mean, I think if we if we look at it from a lens of pathology, it might be control. Uh, if we depathologize it and look at it as healthy expression, it might be the ability to, you know, be vulnerable. It might be ability to express yourself in a way that oh, you don't okay, feel yeah. safe to in another way. In another part of their lives. Yeah. I think I know where you're getting at that, Greg, because sometimes because sometimes I'll hear, you know, I mean, I'm not talking about client population, but somebody who's very much like a high level CEO, you know, decides. I've seen that in movies. Yeah. So so I think that's more what Alex. Yeah. More Alex is that would be more pathologizing. And I would I would think could be. And I circle back to this notion of the work that we do with the people that we support is on being with them and really understanding what these, you know, what we see sort of in the outside world as sexual acts and really are intimate expressions of self. Mm-hmm. And, and through through the work that we're doing and working with people with, we're trying to help them understand what this is about so that they can connect to it in a healthy way, if that's healthy for them. Yeah. And I think that's, that's sort of the caveat there. If it's it, healthy, healthy for them. Yeah. Like ultimately, when we're talking about being in a, a healthy sexual place, we're talking about engaging in acts and behaviors that aren't bringing up trauma or shame. Right. Earlier, you mentioned being sexually addicted. So for those that don't know, and I think there's a lot of misconception about it, is what is sex addiction? How would you explain that to a client? They're going, am I addicted to this? I think what it, it you know, it comes down to really... A clinical assessment um, is: is it compulsive? Has it increased over time? Um, is it getting in the way of your life, either your job or your relationship, or just your self-care? Um, is there a preoccupation associated with it? There's various tests that we use, like um, batteries of tests that we we use as clinicians to try and help the client identify if he may be, you know, compulsively using sex. In a, in a way that's causing problems in his life or her. That's the definition. That's the clinical definition. <laughs> can't, can't really add to that. Mind you, I will throw in something that many times partners have already diagnosed their, I'm going to say husband's partner, partner will diagnose ah. partner by ah. actually doing the, the test themselves and identifying if they think that their partner has this issue. And sometimes the partner does not have a sexual addiction. They might have an entitled sexuality 
but they wouldn't it the compulsive when the compulsive is out of the mix then it's it's either been infidelity or there's this entitlement associated with the sexuality but yeah i just want to throw that in not everybody comes in it sounds like a lot of your experience has been working with couples how how long have you guys been working with couples regarding uh this topic oh since i guess i don't know 10 years yeah like i guess since about 2014 mm-hmm. So like, what, what would the benefits be for, for someone to be in couples therapy regarding sex? What do you think is the, the main benefit of partners coming in to, to speak with you together? Well, I think ultimately sitting with a trained professional allows for support in creating a safe environment to be honest and talk about things that maybe are more difficult to speak about without having someone mm-hmm. there. So I I think that's the main benefit is being able to work with someone to create a space that's safe and has support so that if things start to get challenging, that there's someone to really help nudge it back on track. For sure. And I I would see, you know, there are various schools of thought around around when to start couples therapy when there's been betrayal. I'm, I'm more of the mind that, you know, when they're coming in, when if they first come in, say I need couples therapy, I just found out yesterday. I would be really cautious about that because what what you're you're not doing relational therapy, you're not doing attachment therapy. What you're doing is creating a space to to heal a traumatic injury. So and you've got you've got a lot a lot has to happen um, before you actually can can assist that couple with the exception of trying to help them, you know, maybe um, get their own individual therapy, bring them back in. Yeah. I was going to yeah. ask that. That, yeah. that would be yeah. kind of what I would do. And how I usually work with people even prior to having a formal disclosure is I will kind of take up more of a backseat. I'll see them every five weeks. I'll let the individual therapist do their thing and then I'll come in to, to support them as they go. But if they've already kind of been through the process, I will see them on a regular basis and help them um, exactly what Alex said. You're helping them relationally, you're helping them to to heal their their injury, the injuries that have happened from the from the from the addiction or whatever. Yeah, I was going to ask that. It kind of makes sense that uh, the person perhaps should go through some individual therapy one on one with you guys before they go into uh, the couples therapy. Mm hmm. Yeah, I think that's the sort of the ideal scenario. Of course, financially and time-wise, it isn't always feasible. Uh, and we work to support folks that, that we're working with as, as best as we can and how we can. And, and, you know, I sort of echo Natalie's thoughts that it is a bit of a different process if a couple comes in and doesn't have that individual support because through couples therapy and that attachment and and attunement work really does require some ability to personally regulate, some ability to be calm and present and listen to what the other person is saying. And when we're dealing with sort of that initial Mm -hmm. crisis phase of discovery, you know, a, a partner has found text on, on their partner's phone and there's a long history that's been discovered and that couple comes to us for support, what we're really doing is trying to stabilize them and manage a crisis that's happening. Uh, and through that 
hopefully they are able to, you know, develop some sort of internal regulation, some, some ability to be calm and present with their partner. And then that's when that attunement work and that connection work can start to happen. Mm-hmm. You mentioned uh, communication, like how do you uh, help them improve the communication? how they may communicate their their boundaries, their healthy boundaries. I would, you know, if I'm seeing a partner, a partner that's had betrayal or um, anything like that, I would actually work with that partner around boundaries ahead of time. So I would say, you know what, if this has happened and it's just happened, what are your sexual, what are your emotional, what are your physical boundaries, what are your therapy boundaries? And then I would share that boundary list with um, my colleague if my colleague is seeing the other individual. If I was doing it in couples therapy, I would just have them work through it. I would have them do a little bit of homework at a time because you don't want kind of in your, the, the whole process happening, in, you know, in real time because it could set off, you know, some real issues, you know, in, in your office because you want them to be prepared and you want them to have the ability to, to really um, speak from their heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I might, you know, think about it in terms of, good communication is a byproduct of a healthy connection and we we do want to support people with you know various tools to communicate better so that they are able to tune into one another and foster that healthy connection ultimately you know tools only take us so far that there is it is really important that there's some aspect of of processing the traumatic event with one another and witnessing that, you know, your partner can sit in the trauma and acknowledge that this was a painful event. And that acknowledgement can go both ways. And through this, you know, through this process, just being present with one another through, through really what is the most difficult thing, one of the most difficult things that can happen in a relationship there's some trust and safety that's rebuilt. And then when that trust and safety starts to rebuild, because that's a long process, communication, like I said, is a, is a positive byproduct of that. As you're saying, you know, that there, there should be a connection there. How, how do you know if there is a connection with, uh, with my partner? How do I know that we are connected? I, I, I mean, that's <laughs> sort of the process of couples therapy that you go through Again, we use we use lots of assessments. Lots of us use different types of couples therapy. I, I really do like the Gottman method, uh, and it's a form of couples therapy that's quite science based and and offers some pretty good structure for the early stages of the couples therapy experience. The process is like really doing some good assessment work on why did you get together? What were some of the things that stood out at the beginning of your relationship and building back that sense of, you know, the early strengths of the relationship and then building on that to be able to sit and tolerate the the difficult parts that happened later on in mm-hmm. the relationship. Yeah, I, I would, um, I use, I use a, a model, I use various modalities, but the modality that I'm, most um, trained in right now is emotionally focused therapy, which for couples, which really looks at the attachment piece of the model. Very similar, like you, when I, before I see a couple, I would individually interview them and speak to them and assess kind of exactly that, like what was the nature of their relationships? What was the nature of their parent, their, with their parents? What's, what is it like now? 
you know, when they were in relationships prior to this relationship, how did it end? Who ended it? How long did it last? How did, and then kind of the key of it all is like, how did, how did you meet your current partner? What drew you to them? What do you think they don't understand about you? And this is sometimes couples that have been together for a long time. Um, where are you blocked? Where do you feel like you're stuck? So that would be, you know, not necessarily with all couples that are coming in with compulsive sexuality or sex addiction, but I, I do it with everybody so that I get an idea. And then when I see them together, I bring that up. Like, you know, there was so many positive things that that, that, sh- that both of you shared when you spoke to me. And I'll usually leave them at, if they're in the right space, I will have them do an affirmation before they leave the session. So an affirmation. An affirmation. What would be an um, example? You know, Alex, I really loved how you, you know, helped me with the kids today. Or, or um, you know, I really, you know, I really appreciated that you uh, really listened to me when I came home and I was upset about work. So, and then vice versa. So they would do something like that. I guess the other piece, you know, you see them one hour out of a week, maybe. And so homework, so doing um, check-ins to communicate, like um, uh, there's, there's various types of check-ins that couples can do and they would both do it so they can really see, you know, what's my feeling, what's coming up for me. Uh, Like sexual abuse, how does that impact uh, intimacy? Yeah, just, I mean, again, very complex question, but um, I think sexual abuse, if it hasn't been talked about or, or processed, can really hide in the body and and what it can do is create an experience for the individual where they can't really be comfortable and safe in a sexual experience because they're holding so much of you know could be pelvic issues it could be other things that that come up um so really trying to process it prior to looking at it in more depth is probably a good idea mm-hmm. you know i, I might add that unprocessed sexual abuse will more than likely show up as shame around sex. And I think that's one of the things to be aware of if, you know, folks have the experience of sexual abuse is that a symptom is, is that there's always going to be something scary about it. There's always going to be this feeling of maybe dread or this is a task or something that's going to be there that locks the genuine connection of intimacy that happens with healthy sex. That that being said, I, there a lot of our clients have had early sexual abuse. Yes. How, how does that affect someone's uh, sexual desire and arousal and satisfaction in a relationship? I think it makes it really confusing, you know, and, and and just to go back, the key word there is unprocessed. And people can process things in lots of different ways, you know, through therapy or not in therapy. You know, like there's lots of research out there about how collectivist culture, people in collectivist cultures tend to process things in a more healthy and effective way. And I think really what that means is, like, did you talk about the experience with someone to process it and let it go somehow? Uh, and... If so, that's great. You know, lots, lots of folks in, you know, our world that, that we live in and the, that we work in didn't have that opportunity to process it in a healthy way. And 
it it shows up by by blocking intimacy. So here's my discomfort coming back. Let's talk about pornography. <laughs> I'll fight the urge to ask where the discomfort is coming. <laughs> Good therapist question. It's so funny because therapists that don't have our background, like you know, I have a, I have a colleague and. She said, I never talk about sex to my clients. I never yeah. talk. I never right. use that M right. word. I never talk about masturbation. Right. Like, that's right. the first thing we talk about. People, first thing we talk about. Yeah, so, yeah. Okay. What do you want to know about porn? Now, right? <laughs> what do I want to know about porn? Or what do I think listeners would want to know about porn? <laughs> Either works. <laughs> uh, okay. Some questions that I, I think are important to ask. I think a lot of people... I would ask that is that is there such a thing as having an addiction just to pornography, not necessarily a sex addiction? Yeah. yeah. How would you yeah. define that? How, what's the difference? I, I think all those things that we used in the definition at the beginning is like there's some level of compulsion towards it. There's a tolerance that happens there. There's an element of more and more time that's spent and you know, on porn and less time that's spent in your relationship right. or in your job. You know, there's an increase in, in riskiness of watching porn, uh, you know, so sort of the same framework and, and it, it just shows up simply in pornography. And it can be really quite insidious and devastating because porn is so accessible. Yeah. And and I think just to add to that, there's never, you know, when, when, a, when a woman comes in and, you know, or a, a man comes in or a client comes in and says, well, it's just porn. It's never just porn because the, the partner is really devastated by their partner watching pornography yeah. um, because it is taking them away from why are you looking at this? Why, you know, why aren't you attuning to me? What's what's kind of going on? Plus, it can cause all kinds of other issues such as this porn induced erectile dysfunction. So it can cause it can cause a lot of um, disruption in a relationship. Mm hmm. Yeah, you know, I think that oftentimes there is this, you know, people distinguish between pornography and, and acting out sexually with people. Uh, and we tend not to make that distinction when we're doing our work. It comes from a place of trauma. It's showing up like this. And the consequences and the impact are equally significant, regardless of of what the act is outside of sort of the more stuff that's not legal. If someone's unsure, um, how would you assess if someone has a pornography addiction and how do you get around not increasing their shame and guilt about it at the same time? Well, usually they're coming in or somebody sent them in because they're, I mean, I would say 99% of my people are coming in to get it to get it looked at or to get to talk about because it. Because the partner has brought it up or? Sometimes the partner, sometimes themselves. I see, I see single people that, that are concerned about their use of pornography. Uh, it's similar to what Alex said and, you know, how I defined, you know, how you know it's sex addiction. It's how I would explain it is, you know, it, there there is obviously something that's in your mind and it's getting in the way of your life in general. I mean, I wouldn't go, I would, I would be very careful about just not offering any kind of level of shame. They're already in enough shame when they're coming in and talk, to talk about it. Um, and if they, and if they did bring it up or I noticed that there was something that, you know, they were really feeling 
maybe they maybe they might shut down i might say like what's going on with you right now are you feeling you know talk to me about what you're feeling because sometimes they will tell you you know i'm feeling a lot of shame about watching this particular type of porn or whatever we have some really great assessment tools that have been developed by the sort of the International Institute of Trauma and Addiction. They're our certification body for our certified sexual addiction, you know, training. They do the training and all that. And they've created some really phenomenal assessment tools that I think allow us to go through these questions in a way that is really quite clinical and it doesn't intentionally bring shame up. We're in it with the people that we work with. And if shame comes up, we want to be able to pause, talk to them about it and offer some techniques to, you know, come back into the body. And, you know, I I, I say this to clients all the time, therapy is not a race. (laughs) So there's no rush. We, we aren't running out of time with anything. And, uh, things go slower, that's okay. You mentioned that shame and guilt, do I understand this right? Shame and guilt can take you outside of your body. How does that work? Well, I mean, I think it can, for the most part in our work, I think it shows up as disassociation. I see. Yeah, disassociation is basically, there's so much going on in my brain and my body that I can't be in it. So I got to click out, I'm going to be like observing myself as a third party, or I'm going to be, you know, experiencing things like if they're in a dreamlike state, or I might just actually forget big conversations. And I, I think that's how shame and guilt tend to show up in a lot of the work we do. And just to identify, they're, they are different. Uh, shame is more, I am, I am bad, or I am damaged and guilt is I did something bad. So a, a good amount of guilt is good when we're working in this in this field. Uh, what you what you want a lot less of if you know is that core belief of I'm I've always been damaged. I've always been not good enough. You know, I believe exactly what Alex is saying. And and you'll also see shame in just the secrecy, right? So I'm not going to share with anybody because I feel so much shame about it. So you'll you'll find that also will be part of what um, the action is externally. And, and thanks for, for sharing the difference between shame and guilt. Uh, that's something that I covered and a lot of my colleagues covered in addiction is the, the difference between the two. Really important for people to hear kind of hard not to talk about pornography without talking about masturbation. So let's talk about that. How does masturbation impact a relationship? Yeah, I mean, it it can show up in relationships as a healthy mutual experience, or it can show up in relationships as a solitary act that takes away from joint sexuality. Is it cheating? Only a couple gets to define what cheating is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's, That's true. Um, and also, you know, I'll often have clients that have gone through the process, done a lot of treatment, say, can I masturbate again? And I will say, just to use Rob Weiss's words, I would say, are you dissociating? Are you powerless? Are you unmanageable? And if your if your wife is okay, or your partner's okay, or your other partner's okay. So if any of those questions are exclusion of the last one, yes, then no. 
you know, so you, so it's it's part of like what's going on in your mind. Are you having fantasies about like all the euphoric recall of all of the porn stars you saw before, or are you in the moment with your partner thinking about your partner, or are you or are you doing it for a you know a a physiological reason or for you know so it's if, as long as it doesn't become problematic. I, I think, you know, what we're speaking to is working with folks to understand what's healthy for them in sexual recovery. And that's a really unique experience. Sexual that, recovery from sex addiction or? Yeah, yeah okay. From sex addiction uh, or, or any any other sort of, you know, challenges with sexuality. Clients define for themselves what's healthy and for those who we work with who are in relationships, there's always got to be an attunement to what is the impact of this behavior on my relationship and on my partner? And how can we talk about this so that there's some joint meaning before I just sort of go off without their consent and do something that feels good? Uh, How much is too much when it comes to masturbation? It's a question I'm sure people ask you all the time, and I'm sure that listeners would want to know. So, how much is too much? <laughs> um, are you masturbating to the point of injury? injury? If so, that's probably too much. Yeah, I would say that. I would. I was going to say that. It's. I would agree with that. And if it's taking you out of your life, it's, you're just. That's all you're doing. Are you masturbating to the point where you no longer want to have sex with your partner? Right. That yeah. makes sense. Yes. Are you mm-hmm. doing it in dangerous places? Mm-hmm. It's not a number. There's no number. Well, I'm sure a lot of people are very relieved to hear that. <laughs> I mean, really, though, as with anything that we're talking about, we're looking at what is the impact of this action on the rest of your life? And if, if you've got some negative consequences, then perhaps, you know, take a step back and examine, is this, is this healthy for me? I imagine being exposed to pornography early in someone's life has a huge impact on them in what way? You know, I'd I'd add to that. It has a huge impact on them if they never debrief it with their family. So it could be healthy early on Mm -hmm. if it creates a dialogue with with the family. Yeah. As, As with most things, if it's normalized and the shame aspect is taken away from it, then it just becomes part of the healthy fabric of life. Porn is everywhere. There's no way that we're going to escape it. Yes. And it, and it goes way, and it goes way back. It goes way back in, you know, Sears catalogs. I mean, it goes way back. What, you know, you can make porn anything, Yeah. but, I, but I agree. Like if you didn't have a parent that could say, Oh, you know, let's talk about that, you know, and instead of the shame, because when the shame comes up, with the sexual act, the shame and the sexual act and the and the fear around being caught, like it's not the best way to handle it. Uh, if if without that validating environment in childhood, the being exposed to porn at an early age goes really internal. And it going so internal for some people shows up as, you know, like reenacting the porn as adults or having porn as as one of the most successful, and I air quote successful part, uh, ways of managing big emotions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I hear that sex isn't necessarily the same as we see in porn. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, you think? <laughs> you think? Do, like, yeah. Watching and being exposed to porn like early in life, doesn't that have an effect on their expectations of sex later on? If no one comes in and says what's important is not real, then yes. Yeah, and you right from hear the, that as a right thing, everything we say around sex, Craig, is like there's there's really yeah. like porn itself, the fact that it exists, sure, you know, it's it's misogynistic in nature. There, you know, they may have some people who are part of the experience and who have their own challenges. But there's like tons of ethical porn coming out that's sort of, you know, feminist driven and, and tries to honor the performers. So, you know, like the industry itself is is responding to some of the negative things with some of the studios and, and like ultimately we're not here to judge an entire industry like yes like do i think it's unhealthy sure um does it exist and do some people use it as really the only way to explore their sexuality early in childhood you know and by that i mean like preteen teen when sexual development has started to happen I think for a lot of uh, queer and trans folks specifically, porn is the only way that they can access anything that they feel going on inside of them in, in what looks or could be a healthy way. So, you know, there's, there's arguments on both sides. And, and, you know, like ultimately we're not here to judge that. We're here to support the people that come through our door and have some sort of expression of it not being healthy for them. Tell me more about what you just said about uh, some pornographies coming out that is, it has a, a different perspective about sexuality and, and that is looking at it from a, a healthier lens. Tell me more about it. I didn't even know that existed. I can't say I'm an expert, but <laughs> I do know like, uh, cause our clients are, are, you know, they share with us. So they I teach I us more than we know <laughs> yeah, I, I a lot through the people that I work with. And, and, you know, I've come to understand that there are uh, some female run feminist driven ethical porn companies that are popping up. That Less are, objectification. Well, I mean, it's, it's porn, so I don't know. <laughs> 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 I don't know. No body parts in this board. <laughs> I don't know, but I, I'm I understand that that that's the goal. Like, are they successful? Again, I don't know, but I encourage you to do some research. Yeah, I think I'll check it out myself. <laughs> that's something I, I, I always learn something in these interviews. Uh, even though I'm a therapist, I, I wasn't aware of that. It, it, that sounds to be a very positive thing is that they're making porn that is a little more realistic in that way, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's probably the base of it. It's like, you know, more realistic body types, less sort of overly sexualized images, specifically of women. Uh, you know, there's a real acknowledgement that classic porn is misogynistic. So in 2023, there's so many ways that people can access porn and access, uh, you know, there's the, the hookup apps and the digital age has influenced us quite a bit. How do online apps uh, influence how we see sex aside from porn, but just, you know, just the apps that are out there and that it's just so easy that, you know, you can find somebody swipe to the left or I don't know, is, this, is it left or right? I don't know, swipe, swipe to the left to accept. But anyway, uh, how, how does that influence how we see sex when, Everything is so immediate nowadays with the digital age. 
I feel like if we'd need two hours just to talk. Yeah, me too. Me too. But I think I, yeah, it's definitely for, I would say a no, no for somebody who's got compulsion because we want them to learn how to have a healthy relationship right from the beginning. So we do an exercise in our work called the courtship inventory. So with an an app, you jump right to like, what do they look like? I want to have sex with them. You know, so you don't get to know somebody. You don't get to say, oh, I really don't like the way that they talk to other people. You don't you, you don't have a sequencing that happens. So when it comes to apps, I mean, I'm not anti apps, but when it comes to apps, there there is an artificial artificiality and, a, and an instant gratification that can cause problems mm-hmm. for people. Yeah. You know, and just to add to that, I think what happens with the apps is that there is a big connection piece that's missed. If we meet someone socially, we've got to start off by noticing them. We have to acknowledge that there's, you know, some attraction there. There's some flirting that includes small talk. And we learn a lot about our partners during those stages of courtship. On the app, it, it, I'm guessing this isn't every time, but there's a fast forward to what do you like sexually and how can we create a bond through sex? I think, you know, it can skew our sense of what intimacy is. And then that, that notion of intimacy gets interpreted as pleasure when really intimacy is the ability to be safe with someone to the be feeling validated by our partner. And then through that safety and validation, we have a connection. We don't necessarily get that with the apps. Right. Working in um, addiction substances, um, very often the clients would also have other addictions, including sex addiction. So like, what are some common substances that are abused for people that have sex addiction and how do they interact and how do they relate to each other? Mm-hmm. So for me, I, in my practice, I, I do work with a lot of uh, men, you know, who are gay and are also struggling with crystal meth use. So I, I, I think that if we sort of did a cross section uh, and looked at, at all of the things that our clients were struggling with, it would be quite similar to your experience, Greg, where the, this, you know, multiple addictions may pop up. Uh, so, you know, for me, I, I have a lot of experience working with crystal meth. And so I just sort of, you know, find my way, you know, through to be lucky enough to work with a lot of these clients. Um, but we have got colleagues who work you know, with different like gambling. I'm thinking of someone with, you know, lots of alcohol use. Yeah. Okay. Cocaine use. Yeah. There's, there's, there's a lot of, of cross addictions that happen. And I think it's, unfortunately, as with any addiction, it it can lead to really chaotic lifestyles. And that's where substances and alcohol or other behavioral addictions might pop up. Yeah, for sure. In our initial meeting, uh, Alex, uh, we were talking about crystal meth, and you mentioned a book by uh, David Fawcett, Lust, Men, and Meth. And he talks a lot about meth sex. So is there more to meth sex than sex with meth? Yeah, so I I think that uh, for many people, crystal meth gets paired with sex. And as with anything that can bring on big consequences, 
the behaviors may get more risky. The you know sex with a partner may transform into group sex, and the consequences that get built with crystal meth and sex are pretty high. You know, un- unfortunately, one of the big side effects of crystal meth is psychosis, is really losing touch with reality. There's not a lot of self-care that happens, and lots of energy goes into being sexual and having sex. And um, a, a big part of recovery from crystal meth and sex addiction is figuring out how to have sex healthy, sober. Healthy sexuality, yeah. Alex, can you talk about the dopamine and how the dopamine is so much more stimulated with meth? Yeah, so like crystal meth is a stimulant and, you know, stimulants trigger dopamine responses. And when you pair that with an orgasm or sex, which is, you know, also like there's lots of different uh, neurochemicals and hormones that come with that. But that pairing with the stimulant and sex creates the perfect storm in the brain for these two things to have to be present for the notion of pleasure to happen. And that unpairing is really quite challenging. And imagine, too, if there's a relationship where crystal meth is just part of the sexual relationship between the partners, right? And then if they both are are trying to recover from sex addiction, it's almost like a third party. Would you agree? Yeah, I mean, I think... think, uh, any sort of sex addiction is a third party yeah. in a relationship <laughs> or any addiction in general. So, so yeah, I, I totally agree. I think that I, I think that, you know, acknowledging the addiction, acknowledging the struggles of recovery are always a challenge that couples have to face when doing their healing work. And if we've got two addicted partners, then that challenge is combined. A question for Natalie. You provide uh, group counseling for partners and for women only. What's the difference between uh, groups versus individual therapy regarding sex addiction? The group therapy process is extremely effective because how it really enables, I I, I haven't done a group in a little bit of time um, as far as my own practice, but I've actually run groups outside of my own practice it really allows, I'm going to say women, because mostly betrayed partners, um, the ability to have their voice heard and to be validated and to have, you know, it's not a club that they want to belong to, but having somebody to talk to, having support in, in with each other, ex- sharing their experiences, having somebody actually listen to their whole story beginning to end in silence, another another partner that's dealing with it. Um, I learned so much from my clients. My clients are my best teachers, my partners and my addicts, but my partners are my best, are my best teachers. They, they have led me in directions that I would have never gone in before because they have so much education around it because they, 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 they have a need to try to understand their life. So the difference between group and individual, they're both great modalities. I just, group is just, has that added feature of really being able to, to share, they can hold each other accountable as well. Yeah, I, I might just add to that uh, in support of groups is that oftentimes what we're working with is, is trouble with intimacy and connection and being able to support folks who have a, a, you know, a challenge connecting in that group therapy context where there's like 10 of us in a room and, and, and there's big emotions and sharing and, and we've got to 
you know, stay regulated and be mindful of everyone else in the room, it really mimics what a, a, a healthy connection. It's not even a mimic. It is what a healthy connection is. And group therapy is one of those magical places to be as a therapist. In addition to group therapy, peer mm-hmm. support, right? The, mm-hmm. the community support is really important. What kind of communities of support are out there that, that you'd recommend people to look into? So there's fantastic 12-step supports for sex addiction, sex love addiction. You know, we've got SA, SAA, and SLAA. There's nuanced differences between the three. And I really encourage folks to go read up on all the three different types of groups if they think that they're struggling with sex addiction and find what's a, a good fit for them. Uh, and and there's, you know, there's always smart recovery as well. And, and that's sort of a CBT-based addiction recovery process that, that that's great. It's fantastic. Um, and, and, and like other peer support or peer-driven groups that might be out there, uh, like there's quite a bit of support for sexual addiction. Hard to find, but it's there. Are they all 12-step based? No, not all. Nope. Because you mentioned smart recovery. I don't think smart recovery is 12-step based, right? Nope. Nope. S-A-S-L-A-A-S-A-A is the only 12-step. Those three are 12-step based. The other peer supports are are just sort of your your peer support model. Yeah, I I just wanted to mention about partners. And partners are very... um, partners can go to Asanon if they do identify there there is a little bit of a, a rise up in the community around various you know I cause this kind of coatic model the coatic model is not quite popular these days so there are other types of groups and I'm happy to you know if people want to contact me I can put them in touch with specific groups for partners that are much more um amenable to the partners of of the common age right now and uh and also there's there's groups that that uh, are out there that are facilitated by coaches facilitated by us um but yeah i think for the version of the addict the 12-step groups are quite popular winding down here because i want to take up a lot of your, your time um other than groups and community support, what other resources would you uh, recommend to the listeners? And I'll also put them in the uh, episode description. Uh, what other resources would you like to mention? So I think ITAP is a fantastic resource, and that's IITAP.com. Uh, that's the International Institute of Trauma and Addiction, and they have a fantastic registry of CSATs in Canada. Uh, and, you know, folks can go to that registry and see what therapists are in their community or, or what's some virtual work that's available. I think the 12-step supports are, are great. I, I really encourage people to check a, a meeting out if they feel as if they're struggling with some of these issues. And us, like the therapists who are in the community, we're always happy to point people in, in the direction of healing. Mm-hmm. There's also uh, a group that certified that certifies themselves called the Association of Partners of Sex Addicts Trauma Specialists. It's APSATS, A P S A T S, but it's also a group that people can can access. We'll also note uh, your websites too. So Natalie, it's CenterForLifeSolutions.com and AlexASJCounseling.com. That's it. I'll have that in the uh, description for the episode. 
Thank you so much to both of you for coming on the show. We covered so much ground and I believe normalized a lot of taboo subjects. But uh, the key thing is I, I would like to believe that, you know, our discussion will contribute to the continuing dialogue. That's so, so needed. So uh, we really appreciate you guys being here. And thank, thank you for the invitation and for talking about these uncomfortable topics. Thanks thank you, again. Uh, thank you for inviting us, Greg. Okay, there you have it. The first time we talked about sex on the podcast. Uh, too bad Rob missed it because I think that knowing Rob, he probably would be as embarrassed and uncomfortable as I was. You probably heard that. When I wrote down the questions, I was fine. But in front of Alex and Natalie, that was when I was a bit uncomfortable. Hey, I grew up Catholic. So, you know, there you go. I hope the discussion helps some couples, especially those who needed some more information about sex addiction, sexual abuse, and trauma. All of those very much misunderstood. So I hope that creates some discussion and uh, discussion with your partner. Thank you to our Patreon subscribers who send in a few dollars a month to the podcast to keep it on the air. If you like what we're doing and would like an advanced download of our episodes before we post them and a transcript, sign up at patreon.com backslash mindbodymatters. Mindbodymatters is a great media podcast. Thanks for listening. And if there's a topic that you'd like to hear about, drop us a line at mb-matters.com. Be sure to like and follow us on all our socials. And if you like what you hear, hit subscribe or follow and share with your friends. 